American progressives look to Western Europe as the model of what America should be. So here's an area of European social policy that progressives will definitely want to examine more closely. Europe's attitude toward abortion. It happens to be much more restrictive than that of the United States. That's right. Western Europeans, as progressive and secular as they are, have a much more conservative attitude about abortion than American progressives do. Here is what Emily Matcher wrote in the Atlantic magazine in 2013. Quote, I assumed that Western Europe would be the land of abortion on demand, but as it turns out, abortion laws in Europe are both more restrictive and more complicated than that. Waiting periods, decried by American pro-choicers as unreasonably burdensome, are common. Close quote. In Germany, for example, nearly all abortions are illegal after 12 weeks. And there's a three-day waiting period and mandatory counseling before a woman is allowed to have an abortion, even during the permitted first 12 weeks. That's more restrictive than Texas. In the U.S., abortions are legal in every state before a pregnancy has reached its 20th week. After that, some restrictions do kick in. 11 states prohibit abortion after the 20th week of pregnancy. 20 states prohibit abortions at the point of viability, which is when a baby can survive outside the womb. They usually recognize that as being 23 to 25 weeks. Three states prohibit abortion after the 28th week, and seven states, plus Washington, D.C., allow abortions to be performed at any point in a pregnancy, even if the mother could safely give birth to a viable and healthy baby. But in Belgium, like Germany, abortions are permissible only until the 12th week. After that, an abortion is permitted only if the woman's life is in danger. Furthermore, any woman getting an abortion must wait six days after her first medical consultation before an abortion can be performed. Denmark is similar. After 12 weeks, all sorts of restrictions apply. Pregnant women in Finland also have until the 12th week of pregnancy to get an unrestricted abortion, and during those first 12 weeks, a woman must provide a compelling reason for ending her pregnancy. In France, too, abortion on demand is legal only up to 12 weeks, after which it becomes much more difficult. Socialist Sweden allows abortions until the 18th week of pregnancy and bans most after the 22nd week. In that four-week gray period, a woman can get an abortion, but only if it is approved by the National Board of Health and Welfare. In the Netherlands, before having an abortion, a woman has to wait five days and attend a counseling session in which she must be informed of the different options available to her, including taking the pregnancy to term and giving her baby up for adoption. A minor under the age of 18 cannot have an abortion at any time unless she has the consent of her parents. And in Norway in 2014, a major controversy erupted after it was revealed that, since 2001, 17 babies had been aborted after 22 weeks, the legal cutoff point in that country. That wouldn't merit a paragraph in a local U.S. newspaper, let alone start a media firestorm. So why is it that abortion laws in the United States are so extreme relative to those in Europe? Why is it that progressive politicians in the United States work tirelessly to fight back any restrictions on abortion, even partial birth abortion? That's the procedure during which a fully viable baby is almost completely delivered, except for the head, before being killed. And why is it that what is unacceptable to socially enlightened Europeans is fully acceptable to American progressives? Europeans seem to recognize that abortion is a complex moral issue, that ending a life after a certain point in a pregnancy does not reflect well on a society. Why is it so hard for American progressives to recognize the same? I'm Elisha Krauss for Prager University. It seems that hardly a day goes by in which the Islamic State, also known as ISIS or ISIL, doesn't appear in a newspaper or on a TV news screen. And the news is always bad, hideous death and wanton destruction of a type rarely seen in modern history. So what is the Islamic State? Where did it come from? What does it want? And why? Let's try to answer these questions in turn. <laughs> 
First, ISIS is the illegitimate child of Saddam Hussein's regime and al-Qaeda. Saddam's former military and intelligence officers hold many of ISIS's most senior positions and have overseen the group's rise to prominence. In 2002 and early 2003, some al-Qaeda members relocated from Afghanistan to Iraq, where they prepared to fight the Americans, who toppled Saddam Hussein's regime in March 2003. These jihadists became known as al-Qaeda in Iraq when their leader, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, swore his allegiance to Osama bin Laden in 2004. Zarqawi, a murderous psychopath, was finally killed by U.S. and Iraqi forces in June 2006. Following his death, al-Qaeda in Iraq was rebranded as the Islamic State of Iraq. In 2010, a new leader took control of the group, Abu Baker al-Baghdadi. Taking advantage of the power vacuum left by the complete U.S. withdrawal from Iraq in 2011 and the Syrian civil war that began that same year, Baghdadi and his lieutenants greatly expanded the size and scope of the organization. At first, Baghdadi was loyal to al-Qaeda's senior leadership, but in 2013 he defied orders from his superiors and declared that his group was now the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or Levant, known by its acronyms ISIS and ISIL. It's worth noting that ISIS continues to market Osama bin Laden's endorsement of them to this day. What does ISIS want and why? ISIS is attempting to resurrect an empire similar to those that arose in Islam's early history. These empires were referred to as caliphates and led by a caliph, the Muslim's chief ruler, also known as the emir of the faithful. This is, in fact, how Baghdadi's followers now refer to him. ISIS relies on a rich Islamic mythology with citations from Islamic texts to justify its actions and portray itself as the true heirs of Muhammad. Their propaganda videos use Islam's early history to frame their actions as part of an ongoing conflict with the Crusaders. ISIS's leaders want their followers to believe they are fighting as part of the same religious war. When ISIS's Libyan branch executed 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians in 2015, ISIS advertised the slayings in a video titled, A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross. The Nation of the Cross, of course, meaning Christians. That's why on Libya's Mediterranean shores, the lead executioner of the Egyptian Coptic Christians pointed his knife in the direction of Italy and promised to conquer Rome, the symbolic seat of Christendom. Despite seeking to spark an interfaith war, however, most of ISIS's victims are Muslims, especially Shiite Muslims for whom ISIS, which is Sunni Muslim, harbors a special animosity. ISIS claims that any Muslim who does not swear bayah, an oath of allegiance, to Baghdadi is an infidel or an apostate. Even ISIS's rival jihadists in al-Qaeda are considered apostates because they refuse to genuflect to Baghdadi. In November 2014, Baghdadi announced that his caliphate had expanded into several areas outside of Iraq and Syria. Baghdadi's people set up provinces everywhere from West and North Africa to the Arabian Peninsula to South Asia. ISIS argues that Muslims owe these provinces their loyalty. Most of these provinces control little territory, but they have become prolific killers. Just over one year after Baghdadi's announcement, the Islamic State's provinces had already engaged in hundreds of terrorist attacks. On October 31, 2015, for example, the Islamic State's province in Sinai brought down a Russian airliner, killing all 224 people on board. In sum, ISIS is attempting to become a permanent totalitarian state, inspired by the caliphates of Islam's first decades. From this base, they will spread their ideology to the rest of the world. Anyone who stands in the way is marked for death. But ISIS's caliphate claim rests on its ability to control territory. This is both its strength and Achilles' heel. Should it lose significant ground in Iraq and Syria, its caliphate claim will become tenuous, severely damaging its legitimacy in the eyes of many Muslims. How this might happen is a key question for the United States, Europe, Asia, and many in the Arab world. But this much we know, it will take much more than airstrikes. I'm Tom Jocelyn of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies for Prager University. Marriage might have been fine for your parents or grandparents, but of what value is it today? Isn't it, as more and more young people seem to be saying, just a piece of paper? Well, it turns out that piece of paper might be the most valuable thing you will ever own. Take the case of Doug Talby. At age 18, Talby worked a minimum wage job operating a press at a factory in Indiana and lived in his parents' basement. I didn't have a care in the world, Talby says. I didn't even have any bills. But after marrying at 19 and having kids, Talby's perspective changed. I had to step up and think about others and start taking care of them. Tobby quit his factory job and joined the Army, where he made significantly more money and received housing and health care paid for by the military. 
Whenever he saw a chance of promotion, he pursued it. It meant more money and benefits for himself and his family. Recently, in a bid to further boost his family's income, he left the army to work as a finance manager at a car dealership. He's now pulling in six figures. Men who see no need to marry, or who are reluctant to marry until they make more money, could benefit from Talby's discovery. Marriage has a transformative effect on the behavior, emotional health, and financial well-being of adults, especially men. Men who get married work harder and more strategically, and earn more money than their single peers from similar backgrounds. Marriage also transforms men's social world. They spend less time with friends and more time with family. They go to bars less and to church more. In the words of Nobel Prize-winning economist George Akerlof, men settle down when they get married. If they fail to get married, they fail to settle down. My own research bears out Akerlof's view. Married men work about 400 hours more per year than single men with equivalent backgrounds. A Harvard study also found that married men were much less likely than their single peers to quit their current job unless they had another one lined up. All this translates into a substantial marriage premium. On average, married men earn almost 20% more than their single peers. That's even after controlling for differences in education, race, ethnicity, and other background factors. You can read more about this in my study for richer for poorer how family structures economic success in America. Why is there such a substantial marriage premium? There are at least four important reasons. One, after marrying, men assume a new identity. Marriage is one of the last rites of passage into manhood remaining in our society, argues sociologist Stephen Nock. He found that marriage engenders an ethic of responsibility among men. As well as a newfound sense of meaning and status in the world. Two, married men are motivated to maximize their income. This means having a different attitude toward their job. They work more hours and make better work choices. Studies find that men increase their work hours after marrying and reduce their hours after divorcing. Sociologist Elizabeth Gorman concludes that married men are more likely to value higher-paying jobs than their single peers. Three. There is evidence that employers prefer and promote men who are married. Married men are often seen as more responsible and dedicated workers, and are rewarded with more opportunities to advance. Fourth and finally, married men benefit from the advice and encouragement of their wives, who have an obvious interest in their success. There is no better motivator than your spouse. The tragedy is that, despite all the good news we keep learning about the benefits of marriage, the institution is in retreat. In 1960, 72% of all adults ages 18 and older were married. Today, it's 49%. In 1960, the average age at which men married was 23. Today, it's 29. The consequences of this are negative across the income spectrum, but they are especially so for those in the lower and middle classes. Marriage is a clear path to a better life. It always has been, and now we have plenty of data to confirm it. But if you still don't believe me, just ask Doug Talby and millions like him. I'm Brad Bullcox, associate professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, for Prager University. Visit Israel, and you'll be startled by how many colors you'll see. I don't mean the colors of the buildings or landscape. I mean the colors of the people: black, white, olive, brown, and everything in between. Israel is a true United Nations. That's because Israel is a nation of refugees from everywhere, and more than half of them are from. Are you ready? Arab countries. Over 850,000 Jews were expelled or fled from the Middle East and North Africa following the Arab countries' attack on Israel when it gained its independence in 1948. For over 2,000 years, these Jews had lived in the Arab countries of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt. Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq, and in the Muslim but non-Arab countries such as Turkey and Iran, today they form over half of Israel's Jewish population. Many of these Jews from Middle Eastern lands look well, just like other people from Middle Eastern lands of darker complexion with dark hair. Other Jews migrated from North Africa. So why is their story so unfamiliar to most people? The most important reason is that they didn't remain refugees for long. 
But refugees, they most certainly were. The vast majority forced to leave their homes, possessions, and businesses behind. In other words, they came to Israel with nothing. Some 650,000 of the Jews forced to flee North Africa and the Middle East became citizens of Israel. The other 200,000 fled to the United States and other Western countries. To give you an idea of how few Jews remain in Arab countries, consider these numbers. There were 150,000 Jews in Iraq in 1948. Today, there are less than 10. There were 140,000 Jews in Algeria. Today, there are less than 50. There were 75,000 Jews in Egypt. Today, less than 20. The pattern is the same across North Africa and the Middle East. Now contrast these forgotten Jewish refugees with the most celebrated refugees in the world, the Palestinians. How is it that the Jewish refugees are not even an afterthought, but the Palestinians are the longest lasting, most lavishly supported refugee population in the history of the world? The answer is purely political. After Israel gained its independence in May of 1948, the surrounding Arab nations attacked the new Jewish state. As a result, about 700,000 Arabs living in Israel fled. Many left because of the war, and many did because they were told by Arab leaders to leave the Jewish areas. The idea was that they would return once the Jews and their state had been destroyed. Khalid al-Azam, the Syrian prime minister in 1948 to 1949, admitted this Arab role in persuading Palestinians to leave. In his memoirs, he wrote, Since 1948, we have been demanding the return of the refugees to their homes, but we ourselves are the ones who encouraged them to leave. That's how the Arab, later renamed Palestinian refugee crisis, was created. In 1949, the United Nations formed UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for the Palestinian Refugees, the largest and only long-term UN agency that was ever formed to deal with just one group of refugees. Seventy years later, it still exists and still calls the Palestinians and their children and their grandchildren refugees. It has an annual budget of over a billion dollars, funded mostly by the U.S. and the European Union. How much did the Jewish refugees who were expelled from the Middle East and North Africa receive from the UN? How much did Israel receive to help toward their resettlement? How much does it receive today? The answer to all three questions is the same. Zero. So the next time you hear someone talk about the Palestinian refugees, ask them why they never talk about the Jewish refugees. And the next time you hear people talk about Israel being settled by Europeans, ask them if they've ever seen an actual picture of Israelis. In color. I'm Dumisani Washington of Christians United for Israel for Prager University. In 2011, a solar power company called Solyndra declared bankruptcy. A company going bankrupt is not news, but Solyndra was not just any company. Its biggest investor was the federal government which had given it $500 million. That was news. But really, it shouldn't have been. If history is any guide, it was quite predictable. The government is a very poor investor, and always has been. There are countless examples, but two should serve our purpose here. After the Civil War, American leaders were anxious to bind the country's north, south, east, and west regions together with transcontinental railroads. Congress, therefore, gave massive federal aid to build the Union Pacific, the Central Pacific, and later the Northern Pacific Railroads. But all three of these roads had huge financial problems. The Union Pacific, for example, was mired in financial scandal from its inception, went bankrupt several times, and had to rebuild large sections of track thanks to shoddy construction practices. At that same time, James J. Hill, with no federal aid whatsoever, built a railroad from St. Paul to Seattle, the Great Northern. How was Hill able to do with private funds what the Union Pacific failed to do with the gift of tens of millions of federal dollars? The starting point is incentives. The Union Pacific was paid by the government for each mile of road it built. It was in the railroad's interest not to build the road straight. The more miles it took the UP to cross Nebraska, for example, the more money it made. 
Hill, by contrast, used his own capital. To make a profit, he had to build his Great Northern Railroad sturdy and straight. Hill's company remained in business for almost a hundred years until 1970 when it merged with other railroads. The original Union Pacific, riddled with corruption and numerous other financial misdeeds, including the wholesale bribery of public officials, went broke within ten years. The story of the airplane is even more stark. By the opening of the 20th century, the major nations of Europe and America were frantically at work trying to invent a flying machine. The first nation to do so would have a huge military and commercial advantage. In fact, leading American politicians of the day, such as Teddy Roosevelt, President William McKinley, and others, argued that building an airplane was a national emergency. There was no time, they argued, to wait for private industry to get the job done. The government needed to pick the best aeronautics expert and give him the money he needed. That expert was Samuel Langley, the president of the prestigious Smithsonian Institution and holder of honorary degrees from Harvard, Yale, Oxford, and Cambridge. Langley was already an accomplished inventor, and he had written a highly praised book, Experiments in Aerodynamics. Federal officials gave Langley funds for two trial flights. He immediately set to work. His theory was that his plane needed to be thrust into the air from a houseboat on the Potomac River. The big engine on the plane would then propel it through the air for several minutes. When his first attempt failed and the plane splashed into the river, Langley was not deterred. But when his second flight did no better, Langley and the politicians gave up. If Langley, with the full backing of the government, could not solve the problem, people simply assumed that it could not be solved. Indeed, the New York Times wrote that human flight might take a million years to accomplish. But to everyone's surprise, nine days after Langley's failure, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, with $2,000 of their own money, conquered the air. On a beach at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, they flew the first plane. Within five years, they had constructed an aircraft suitable to sell to the government for military defense. Langley's subsidized failure was similar to that of the Union Pacific, and the Wright brothers' success resembled that of James J. Hill and the Great Northern Railroad. Langley and the Union Pacific were using other people's money. They did not spend it as carefully as Hill and the Wright brothers spent their own money. As the San Francisco Chronicle concluded at the time, the destruction of Langley's machine should put an end to congressional appropriations of any kind in every field of experiments which properly belongs to private enterprise. That remains good advice. Economic growth comes from entrepreneurs risking their own money, not from politicians risking your money. I'm Burton Folsom, professor of history at Hillsdale College for Prager University. What if I told you that someone had developed an energy source that could help us solve our biggest environmental challenges, purify our water and air, make our cities and homes more sanitary, and keep us safe from potential catastrophic climate change? What if I also told you that this energy source was cheap, plentiful, and reliable? Well, there is such a source. You probably know it as fossil fuel, oil, natural gas, coal. But wait, don't fossil fuels pollute our environment and make our climate unlivable? That, of course, is what we're told and what our children are taught. But let's look at the data. Here's a graph you've probably never seen. The correlation between use of fossil fuels and access to clean water. More fossil fuel, more clean water. Am I saying the more that we have used fossil fuel, the cleaner our water has become? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. In the developed world, we take clean water for granted. We turn on a tap, and it's there. 
But getting it there takes a massive amount of energy. Think of the man-made reservoirs, the purification plants, the network of pipes. In the undeveloped world, it's a much different story. They lack the energy, so they lack clean water. More fossil fuel, more clean water. The same is true of sanitation. By the use of cheap, plentiful, and reliable energy from fossil fuels, we have made our environment cleaner. Take a look at this graph. More fossil fuel, better sanitation. Okay, what about air quality? Here's a graph of the air pollution trends in the United States over the last half century, based on data from the Environmental Protection Agency. Note the dramatic downward trend in emissions, even though we use more fossil fuel than ever. How is this achieved? Above all, by using anti-pollution technology, powered by fossil fuel, oil, natural gas, and coal. But even without modern pollution control technology, fossil fuel makes our air cleaner. Indoor pollution, caused by burning a fire inside your house, cabin, hut, or tent to cook and keep warm, was a deadly global problem until the late 19th century, when cheap kerosene, a fossil fuel byproduct, became available in America and Europe. Indoor pollution is still a major issue in the developing world today. The best solution? Fossil fuel. And now we come to the biggest fossil fuel concern of all. Global warming. On this very sensitive topic, we need to get our terms straight. There is a big difference between mild global warming and catastrophic global warming. We can all agree on that, right? The issue isn't, does burning fossil fuel have some warming impact? It does. The issue is, is the climate warming dangerously fast? In 1986, NASA climate scientist James Hansen, one of the world's most prominent critics of the use of fossil fuels, predicted that if current trends are unchanged, temperatures would rise two to four degrees in the first decade of the 2000s. But as you can see from this graph, since 2000, the trend line is essentially flat. Little or no warming in the last 15 years. That's probably why we hear much less talk about global warming and much more talk about climate change. Has this climate change made our world more dangerous? The key statistic here, one that is unfortunately almost never mentioned, is climate-related deaths. That is, how many people die each year from a climate-related cause, including droughts, floods, storms, and extreme temperatures. In the last 80 years, as CO2 emissions have rapidly escalated, the annual rate of climate-related deaths worldwide has rapidly declined by 98%. The reason is that the energy from fossil fuel has allowed the developed world to build a durable civilization, one highly resilient to extreme heat, extreme cold, floods, storms, and so on. The developing world, where natural disasters can still wreak terrible havoc, would like the chance to do the same. But to do that, they will need a lot more energy. The cheapest, fastest, and easiest way to get that energy is from fossil fuels. In sum, fossil fuels don't take a naturally safe environment and make it dangerous. They empower us to take a naturally dangerous environment and make it cleaner and safer. I'm Alex Epstein of the Center for Industrial Progress for Prager University. I'm an atmospheric physicist. I've published more than 200 scientific papers. For 30 years, I taught at MIT, during which time the climate has changed remarkably little. But the cry of global warming has grown ever more shrill. In fact, it seems that the less the climate changes, the louder the voices of the climate alarmists get. So let's clear the air and create a more accurate picture of where we really stand on the issue of global warming, or, as it is now called, climate change. There are basically three groups of people dealing with this issue. Groups one and two are scientists. Group three consists mostly, at its core, of politicians, environmentalists, and media. Group one is associated with the scientific part of the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, Working Group 1. These are scientists who mostly believe that recent climate change is primarily due 
to man's burning of fossil fuels, oil, coal, and natural gas. This releases CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere, and they believe this might eventually dangerously heat the planet. Group 2 is made up of scientists who don't see this as an especially serious problem. It's the group I belong to. We're usually referred to as skeptics. We note that there are many reasons why the climate changes, the sun, clouds, oceans, the orbital variations of the Earth, as well as a myriad of other inputs. None of these is fully understood, and there is no evidence that CO2 emissions are the dominant factor. But actually, there is much agreement between both groups of scientists. The following are such points of agreement. One, the climate is always changing. Two, CO2 is a greenhouse gas without which life on Earth is not possible, but adding it to the atmosphere should lead to some warming. Three, atmospheric levels of CO2 have been increasing since the end of the Little Ice Age in the 19th century. Four, over this period, past two centuries, the global mean temperature has increased slightly and erratically by about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit or 1 degree Celsius. But only since the 1960s have man's greenhouse emissions been sufficient to play a role. Five, given the complexity of climate, no confident prediction about future global mean temperature or its impact can be made. The IPCC acknowledged in its own 2007 report that, quote, the long-term prediction of future climate states is not possible, end quote. Most importantly, the scenario that the burning of fossil fuels leads to catastrophe isn't part of what either group asserts. So why are so many people worried, indeed panic-stricken, about this issue? Here's where Group 3 comes in, the politicians, environmentalists, and media. Global warming alarmism provides them, more than any other issue, with the things they most want. For politicians, it's money and power. For environmentalists, it's money for their organizations and confirmation of their near-religious devotion to the idea that man is a destructive force acting upon nature. And for the media, it's ideology, money, and headlines. Doomsday scenarios sell. Meanwhile, over the last decade, scientists outside of climate physics have jumped on the bandwagon, publishing papers blaming global warming for everything from acne to the Syrian civil war. And crony capitalists have eagerly grabbed for the subsidies that governments have so lavishly provided. Unfortunately, Group 3 is winning the argument because they have drowned out the serious debate that should be going on. But while politicians, environmentalists, and media types can waste a lot of money and scare a lot of people, they won't be able to bury the truth. The climate will have the final word on that. I'm Richard Linson, Emeritus Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at MIT for Prager University. Are American college campuses rape cultures? Are they dangerous places where sexual assaults against women are happening at an alarming rate? According to many gender activists, academics, and politicians, the answer is yes. Here's what the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, said in 2014. We know the numbers. One in five of every one of those young women who is dropped off for that first day of school before they finish school will be assaulted, will be assaulted in her college years. Let's take a closer look at the Vice President's claim. Rape is a horrific crime, and rapists are rightfully despised. We have strict laws against sexual assault that everyone wants to see enforced. But while rape is certainly a very serious problem, there is simply no evidence of a national campus rape epidemic, and there is certainly no evidence that sexual violence is a cultural norm in 21st century America. In fact, rates of rape in the U.S. are very low, and they've been declining for decades. Why would it be any different on a college campus? 
Where then does the one in five rate that Vice President Biden cites come from? Well, it turns out it comes from a study conducted over the internet at two large universities, one in the Midwest and one in the South. The survey was anonymous, no one's claims were verified, and terms were not clearly defined. In round numbers, a total of 5,000 women participated. Based on their responses, the authors, not the participants, determined that 1,000 had been victims of some type of non-consensual or unwanted sexual contact. And voila! From one vaguely worded, unscientific survey, we suddenly arrive at a rape culture on college campuses. Tellingly, the study authors have since explicitly stated that it's inappropriate to use their survey to make that claim. Much more comprehensive data from the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics, or BJS, estimates that about 1 in 52.6 college women will be victims of rape or sexual assault over the course of four years. That's far too many, but it's a long way from 1 in 5. The same BJS data also reveal that women in college are safer from rape than college-aged women who are not enrolled in college. But the truth doesn't serve the purposes of feminist activists or vote-seeking politicians. Lies work much better, and the one-in-five claim is tantamount to a lie. Here are just a few examples of what this lie has wrought. At Scripps College, Pulitzer Prize-winning commentator George Will was disinvited from giving a speech. The reason? He had dared to question the rape culture mantra in a column he wrote. At the all-women Wellesley College, students demanded that the administration remove a campus sculpture of a sleepwalking man wearing only underpants. Why? Well, because the image of a nearly naked male could trigger memories of sexual assault for victims. According to Harvard Law professor Jeannie Suk, students now ask teachers not to include questions about rape law on exams for fear that such disturbing questions might cause them to perform less well. And at Brown University, students were so traumatized by a debate on the subject of campus sexual assault that activists organized a safe room equipped with coloring books, Play-Doh, calming music, and a video of frolicking puppies. No less absurd are the attempts by colleges and legislators to cure this non-existent plague. In California and New York, students now have to live by so-called affirmative consent laws, The California law says that affirmative consent by all parties must be ongoing throughout a sexual activity, while the New York law says that silence or lack of resistance in and of itself does not demonstrate consent. Confused? Pity the poor college students who have to figure this out. If it wasn't so serious, it would be laughable. But it's not funny to a growing number of young men who find themselves accused of sexual assault, publicly shamed, and then brought before campus judicial panels that are guided by rape culture theory. In such proceedings, due process is an afterthought. It's guilty because accused. But here's the best way to prove that the one in five number is phony. Ask yourself this question. Would you send your daughter to a place for four years where there was a 20% chance she would be raped or sexually assaulted? Of course not. Good rarely, if ever, comes from lies. The one in five rape culture lie is no exception. I'm Caroline Kitchens of the American Enterprise Institute for Prager University. We at Prager University understand that America's culture is as important to the nation's health as American politics, and that sport is an important cultural ingredient. So, consider the many reasons why baseball deserves to be the national pastime, the game especially suited to our democracy. First, democracy celebrates ordinary people. Of course, baseball players have extraordinary talents, but most players resemble ordinary people. As a wise baseball man once said, to play baseball, you do not need to be seven feet tall or seven feet wide. And baseball, like America, has a strong independent judiciary, the umpires. In fact, baseball is in one regard better than the rest of America. In baseball, three strikes and you're out. The most expensive Washington lawyers and lobbyists can't help you. And remember, 
Racial integration came to baseball in 1947, a year before integration came to the armed services, and eight years before Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Today, baseball is a career open to talented people from around the world. About 20% of major leaguers are from outside North America. This is because in baseball, the only race that matters is the race to the base. Baseball is a game of episodes, pitch by pitch, out by out, inning by inning, game by game. Hence, baseball generates an enormous, constantly enriched sediment of numbers. And these numbers make baseball a game that embraces what a free society requires, personal accountability. Every morning during the season, a player will find in the box score a precise record of what he did the day before. His runs, hits, outs, strikeouts, errors. If he was thrown out trying to steal second base, the box score will say so. If he failed to drive in teammates who were in scoring position, the box score will announce this failure to the world. In no other sport, in no other profession, is individual performance so unsparingly displayed and dissected. Imagine if, every day, America's lawyers and teachers and business people and journalists had to read in the morning's paper a box score measuring the caliber of their previous day's work. A free society like America is a place where people are free to strive and hence are free to fail. There is a lot of failure in America. Most new business ventures fail. And baseball is a game of constant failure. A player who bats 300 is a star but a star who fails to get a hit 70% of the time. And the teams that lose today must pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and start all over again tomorrow for six months. Which brings us to the number that is hardest for most fans to appreciate. It is not one of the famous numbers of individual achievement, not Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak in 1941, not Ted Williams' 406 batting average, also in 1941. No, the hardest number to comprehend is 162. That is the number of games each team plays in about 185 days. Because baseball is the sport of the longest season, it is the sport in which luck matters least. After 162 games, each team is its record. No better, no worse. From the beginning of April to the end of October, the bad bounces and lucky hits even out, which means baseball is what America aspires to be, a real meritocracy. Baseball also is a good game for democracy because it teaches democratic lessons. It is a game of the half loaf. In baseball, as in democracy, no one gets everything he wants. Essentially, all 30 teams go to spring training knowing they are going to win 60 games and lose 60 games. They play the long season to sort out the other 42 games. And every team also knows this. If it wins only 10 out of every 20 games, it is obviously mediocre. But if it wins 11 out of every 20, it will be in almost 90 games and have a good chance of playing in the postseason which is why in baseball, as in the life of a competitive free society, little differences ultimately make an enormous difference. Baseball also is, as America is, both about individualism and cooperation. The heart of the game is the one-on-one -on -one battle between the batter and the pitcher, but baseball also requires teamwork on offense to move runners another 90 feet and on defense to make 27 putouts. A wise man once said that there are really just two seasons, baseball season and the void. Happily, the void ends and another season is here. So take yourself out to a ball game and savor all the ways the national pastime illustrates the nation's values. And while you're there, have a hot dog. That's American culture, too. I'm George Will for Prager University. I am an American Muslim, and I, along with my mainstream Muslim brethren, in America and abroad, must come to terms with an ever more apparent truth, that we are the only ones who can lead a winning fight against the radicalism crippling our faith. If there was ever any doubt of this, just look at the nature of the terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, 
in December of 2015. What's most troubling about the San Bernardino massacre is that Syed Farouk, the husband half of the terrorist couple, seems to have been, by almost all accounts, an ordinary American. His was not a crime born of poverty or lack of opportunity or an inability to integrate into American society. Just the opposite. He was raised in a middle-class environment by first-generation Pakistani immigrant parents. He was educated and earned a good living. I, too, like many American Muslims, come from a background that's very similar as the son of Pakistani immigrants, which makes the attack all the more concerning. It seems unthinkable that someone in such a position could be susceptible to radicalization. Yet we've seen it happen time and again among younger Muslims in the Middle East, Europe, and now America. Attacks like San Bernardino underscore the importance of countering extremist propaganda. While sophisticated attacks by terrorist groups can be effectively prevented by law enforcement and national security measures, the truth is there isn't much that can be done by any government, not even stricter gun control laws, to eliminate the possibility of a radicalized lone wolf wreaking havoc. Only defeating the ideology that inspires these attacks can do that. A propaganda war must be waged against this radicalism, and American Muslims have to be on the front lines for it to be credible. Merely condemning Islamist terror is not enough. We must actively engage in counter-extremism messaging. We must build an intellectual and theological case against radical Islam. Our religious leaders have to educate and warn our youth about the dangers of searching for spiritual guidance on the internet. They must make it perfectly clear that anyone who engages in any act of terrorism is not doing God's work. They're doing the work of the devil. And we in the Muslim community have to continue to be vigilant. If someone who regularly attends mosque stops coming and disappears abruptly after marrying a Pakistani woman in Saudi Arabia, whom he met online, it shouldn't take two years and 36 Americans getting shot, including one from that very mosque, before we notice. We have the benefit of living in a nation that protects freedom of speech and association, a nation that values the marketplace of ideas, a nation that allows us all to practice our faith no matter our religion. We have the opportunity to speak out and challenge radicalism in a way others abroad cannot. There is a war going on that extends beyond Syria, and American Muslims are under siege, not by a fringe group of bigoted Americans, but by a fringe group of Muslims abroad who seek to tear our communities apart and take away the freedom that we all cherish. They are trying to target the disaffected among us, hijack the mosque pulpit, and convince us that we're unwelcome in our own country. But if we're serious about leading this fight with unified support, certain things will have to change. We can't call out prejudice against our own faith without also calling out the gender inequality and homophobia that we find in some of our own Muslim communities. We can't be champions of our own religious freedom without also championing the freedom of people of all religious traditions, including other Muslim denominations that we may disagree with. We have to change the way we think about Islamic law and vilify the medieval judicial practices that persist in the Middle East. And we must have the uncomfortable but necessary conversations about where much of the funding for this cancerous, supremacist ideology is coming from, Saudi Arabia. We carry with us a responsibility to our country, our faith, and our children. The majority of us are here because our parents or grandparents emigrated from oppressive and illiberal nations for the promise of a better life in America. But the way things are heading... Our children may grow up with less opportunity and freedom than we did. I can think of no greater defeat and surrender to radicalism than that. I'm Kurim Dara for Prager University. Americans didn't invent free market capitalism, but you might say they perfected it. In doing so, they created more wealth for more people than any society in the history of the world. To begin to understand this fascinating and complex story, we have to travel back in time to the very first settlers of America. But before we get to the history, let me define what I mean by capitalism. It's not an easy term to pin down because it developed over thousands of years of human interaction. Adam Smith, 
the great English thinker, first described it in his famous 1776 treatise, The Wealth of Nations, but he didn't invent it. For our purposes here, I define capitalism as an economic system in which individuals freely decide what they will produce and who they will serve. Since both parties have to consent, it's a system in which success demands that you serve the needs of others before you are rewarded for your work. Now back to history. When the first settlers arrived at Jamestown in 1607, then Plymouth in 1620, they were operating under an economic system common to all European nations at that time known as mercantilism. Under mercantilism, businesses, especially in the colonies, were operated for the benefit of the state. While governments permitted the companies to make profits, their primary purpose was to advance the national interest of England or Spain or France. The early American settlements were set up to be self-sufficient so that the English government didn't have to support them, and they had to stake out territory. That was key to the colonial game. If England held the territory, Spain and France didn't. The early colonists began their adventure with what they thought was a beautiful idea. They set up a common storehouse of grain from which people were supposed to take what they needed and put back what they could. Lands were also held in common and were worked in common. The settlers owned no land of their own. Though there was no name for this system, it was an ideal socialist commune. And you can probably guess what happened. It began to fall apart almost immediately. As the colonists learned, when everyone is entitled to everything, no one's responsible for anything. A colonist who started his workday early or stayed late received the same provision of food as a colonist who showed up late, went home early, or didn't work at all. After about two years, the settlement was reduced to eating shoelaces and rats. Half of them died of starvation. Captain John Smith of Pocahontas fame took control of the colony and scrapped a socialist model. Each colonist received his own parcel of land. Private property had come to the new world. He who won't work won't eat, Smith told them, citing the biblical admonition. Well, they worked and they ate and the colony was saved. The same story unfolded further north in the Plymouth colony 10 years later. Although this was a Puritan colony with religious goals, its plan was the same as Jamestown's, and it also failed. As its young governor, William Bradford, noted, by adopting the communal system, we thought we were wiser than God. So they quickly abandoned the commune for private ownership. Soon they had an abundance, which they celebrated with a holiday we now know as Thanksgiving. Over the next 150 years, this hard-learned lesson that men should be responsible for their own economic fate became conventional wisdom in the colonies. The American Revolution was largely fought over the burden that British mercantilism placed on the colonies. Two unpopular taxes, the Stamp Act and the Tea Act, are well-known examples. The Americans saw the British government regulating and controlling almost all of their economic activities and didn't like it. Now, it's true that even after gaining independence, none of the founders could be called capitalists. The idea of capitalism as a description of an economic system was only just beginning to be discussed in America. Yet many of the most influential founders intuitively gravitated toward free market principles. Thomas Jefferson's ideas of private land ownership shaped the famous land ordinance of 1785 that made public land available to private citizens. While Alexander Hamilton's concepts of individual responsibility and sanctity of contracts could be seen in the Panic of 1791-92 in which he steadfastly refused to allow the U.S. government to bail out bankers who had triggered the panic. Benjamin Franklin, of course, had practiced capitalism all his life with his printing business and with his maxims in Poor Richard's Almanac. The Constitution itself is awash in core concepts of a free market, sanctity of contracts, freedom of expression, powerful limits on the government's ability to regulate or tax, an emphasis on paying debts, and so on. In short, it was the wisdom of experience, not academic ideology, that created America's free market principles. The result has been the most prosperous and free nation in the history of the world. I'm Larry Swikart of the University of Dayton for Prager University.
Hi, I'm Dennis Prager. Prager University presents the most important ideas in free five-minute videos on the Internet. We explain the ideas that have made America the freest and most prosperous society in history, and we explain why only a free market system can lift a society from poverty, why the world so needs a strong American military, why Judeo-Christian values are the core of Western civilization, and much, much more. And here's the best part. Our five-minute videos reach tens of millions of people across the world. How do we do this? First, we feature some of the world's finest thinkers. Second, our videos are clear, concise, and entertaining. Progressive versus progressive competing to see who can most flamboyantly claim to be offended, to proclaim that their feelings have been hurt, or that their sensitivities have been rubbed raw, or their serenity disturbed, or their composure discombobulated. I'll fight for you. So tired of these politicians in their town hall meetings when somebody stands up and says, I'm pregnant with quadruplets, um, I've been put on academic probation at the junior college, and my milkman hates my guts. What are you going to do for me? Being a normal boy is a serious liability in today's classroom. Boys tend to be disorganized and restless. Some have even been known to be noisy and hard to manage. Sound like any boy you know? Third, we employ sophisticated social media marketing to connect to our audience. Our goal is to change minds, and just as important, to teach those who agree with our values how to make these arguments on their own so that they can also change minds. We supply the ammunition in the war of ideas. And the number of people we touch is unparalleled. In 2015, PragerU had 70 million views. You heard that right, 70 million. This year, we will surpass 100 million. That's an average of about a million unique individual views of every single video we release, and some of our videos get far more than that. Some examples, the Middle East problem, an explanation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, received over 6 million views. Again, that's 6 million different computers in eight languages, including Arabic. Was the Civil War about slavery? taught by the head of the history department at West Point, has seven and a half million views. Don't judge blacks differently, an argument for equality based on behavior and not skin color, delivered by a young black woman, has over five million views. And these views matter. Seventy percent of Americans use the Internet as a regular source of news. This is especially true of young people, and 60% of our viewers are under 35 years old. We're not done. There's also radio. We promote every PragerU video on my nationally syndicated radio show, heard on more than 150 stations across the United States. And our relationships with other talk radio hosts, as well as other websites, bloggers, and newsmakers, expose us to an even bigger audience. Major newspapers, both in the U.S. and internationally, Refer to our videos on a regular basis. Fox News has played excerpts from our videos multiple times. And congressmen and celebrities quote PragerU videos on their social media. There's also outreach to schools. As one large website, which doesn't agree with us, wrote about this outreach. Prager has developed an ingenious way of getting his opinions to a new kind of audience. One harder to reach via traditional media channels. Today, over 3,000 educators utilize PragerU videos as teaching supplements in their classrooms. We're also spreading the word about PragerU through our college student ambassadors program known as PragerForce. These are carefully screened students in schools throughout America who introduce PragerU to their peers and professors. And finally, we are developing a mobile app to instantly arm people who share our values with the data they need to make persuasive arguments. With this app, our students will be one smartphone click away from stats and analyses on dozens of key issues. 
With our vast reach, savvy marketing, and compelling arguments, PragerU is equipping Americans, especially young ones, with the intellectual firepower they need to defend Western civilization five minutes at a time. And if you aren't sure if five minutes is enough to influence a mind, just think of how much you've learned during this video. I'm Dennis Prager. I took America to war in Iraq. It was all me. Okay, it was mostly me. I had some help from a clueless President George W. Bush and his neoconservative puppet master, Vice President Dick Cheney. Senior White House fanatics spoon-fed reporters like me cherry-picked intelligence about Iraq's alleged weapons of mass destruction so that America could invade Iraq and seize its oil. None of this is true, but many Americans continue to believe it. People died. It was a war. But President Bush didn't lie us into it. The false narrative that he did is itself a lie and deserves to be at last retired. There was no shortage of mistakes about Iraq, and some of the media's pre-war WMD stories were wrong, including some of mine. But so is the enduring, pernicious accusation that the Bush administration fabricated WMD intelligence to take the country to war. Before the 2003 invasion, President Bush and other senior officials cited the intelligence community's incorrect conclusions about Saddam's WMD capabilities and on occasion went beyond them. But relying on the mistakes of others, completely understandable mistakes given Saddam's horrendous record, and making errors of judgment are not the same as lying. American and European arms control experts, counterterrorism agents, and analysts who studied Iraq and briefed White House officials and journalists were the same people who gave me and my fellow reporters at the New York Times accurate information for years about Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda's growing threat to America. In fact, eight months before 9-11, the Times published a series of articles on that threat, a series for which the Times staff, including me, won a Pulitzer Prize. The members of the intelligence community with whom I dealt were overwhelmingly reliable, hardworking, and honest. But they were also human. And in the aftermath of 9-11, they were very wary of ever again underestimating a terrorist threat. There's an enduring myth that policymakers pressured intelligence analysts into altering their estimates to suit the Bush administration's push to war. Yet several thorough bipartisan inquiries found no evidence of such pressure. What they reveal instead is that bad intelligence led to bad policy decisions. The 2005 commission, headed by former Democratic Senator Charles Robb and Republican Judge Lawrence Silberman, called the intelligence community's estimates on Iraq dead wrong. A year earlier, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence denounced such intelligence failures as the product of groupthink, rooted in a fear of underestimating grave threats to national security in the wake of 9-11. Will Toby, a former deputy administrator for the National Nuclear Security Administration, still fumes about the failure to see problems in the CIA's intelligence that supported Secretary of State Colin Powell's pre-war speech at the United Nations about Iraq's WMD. Based partly on the CIA's assurances of strong evidence for each claim, Mr. Powell was persuaded that the case against Saddam was, in his words, rock solid. Why wouldn't he? Over the previous 15 years, none of the congressional committees routinely briefed on Iraq's WMD assessments expressed concern about bias or error. The decision to go to war in Iraq received broad support in Congress from both Republicans and Democrats, and again for good reason. Even if the intelligence community overestimated Saddam Hussein's WMD capability, it didn't create it out of thin air. Saddam had used chemical weapons on his own people, killing thousands. 
he had invaded his neighbors repeatedly. No, President Bush did not take America into a war because he was strong-armed by a neoconservative cabal. As President Bush himself famously asserted, he was the decider. And no, he didn't go to war for oil. If we wanted Saddam's oil, we could have bought it. President Bush's decision to go to war was based on the information that he and his team relied on, information that was collected by the world's top agents and analyzed by the world's top analysts, including the intelligence agencies of France, Germany, and Russia, countries whose leaders did not support going to war. But they all agreed on one thing. Saddam had and was continuing to develop WMD. Our intelligence professionals and those of major European countries overestimated Saddam's capabilities. Mistakes like that filter through the system, from the White House to Congress to journalists to the public. And those mistakes impact policy. But here's the key thing to remember. They were mistakes, not lies. I'm Judith Miller, contributing editor of City Journal for Prager University. To subscribe to our YouTube channel, click here. To help keep our videos free, donate here.